It is good, as always, to be together and open God's Word. Today we will finish up the series on Advent that we've been walking through through the month of December, The Weary World Rejoices. For the previous four weeks and Christmas Eve, we looked at the promises of Christ's coming, that for centuries God had a plan to redeem his people through his Savior, Jesus Christ. On Christmas Eve, we celebrated that Jesus has indeed come, that God is the great promise keeper who made good on all of his plans. And so today, as we finish off this series of Advent, as we finish off a year, as we've reflected on the promises of Christ's first coming, today we want to celebrate what he accomplished at his first coming and look forward to the reality that he is coming again. You see, Advent didn't end with Christ's first coming. There is a second Advent. There is a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that we look forward to with hope and with expectation. And so today, as we go through God's Word and as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we will look and hope at that next coming, that second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we'll be in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to join me there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 23 through 26, we will also have those words available on the screen for you. So Paul writes this to the church at Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning as we spend this time together in your word, that you would open our hearts and minds to the glory and the reality of Christ. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved us so much that you did not count equality with God a thing to be clung to, but instead you chose to come and to make yourself a servant and to die for us on the cross. So we thank you, God, for the forgiveness of sins, and we thank you that you have sent your Spirit into the hearts of your people to give us new birth, to apply that salvation to us, to unite us together as the church, and to empower us to walk faithfully in new life in Christ. So, Father, today, may that new life grow ever more within each of us. Through your Spirit, would you do what you love to do? Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things through your Word? Would you bring transformation? Would you bring salvation? Would you bring sanctification in this time today? We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as we contemplate the first coming and look forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus, we'll celebrate together the Lord's Supper. 
Our Lord Jesus left us two what we call ordinances, two ceremonies to celebrate together in the life of the church to remember him and his work. These are ordinances. They are baptism and the Lord's Supper. As Baptists, we take a symbolic view of each of those. When it comes to baptism, we don't believe that there's anything magical in the water that saves us or cleanses us. It's Jesus that does that. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, uh, we believe that this is ordinary pita bread and ordinary gluten-free crackers and ordinary grape juice. There's nothing mystical or magical that happens to these elements. We do not believe that they become the physical bread and, excuse me, physical body and physical blood of Christ. We believe that this is a memorial ceremony, that both baptism and the Lord's Supper are external displays for the watching world of a true and inward spiritual change that Jesus has made in our lives. They are a way that we can see the gospel acted out. In fact, as we gather together as a church, I believe there's five ways that we ought to regularly engage with the gospel when we worship. On the one hand, we ought to sing the gospel. We ought to sing scripture, and that is what we do. We ought to pray scripture. We ought to pray the gospel. We ought to read God's word. We ought to read the gospel. The gospel ought to be preached, and the gospel ought to be seen. And the way that the Lord has given us to see the gospel, to demonstrate in a physical way, is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so today in our time together, before we partake of this, I want us to think together what this meal signifies. Why do this? Why come together and take some juice and, and take some bread? What, what is it pointing us to? What is the reality of Jesus, as Paul tells us here in verse 26? What is it about the death of the Lord Jesus that we proclaim until he comes when we partake of the Lord's Supper? And so today, we'll see that the Lord's Supper is a, is a meal, is a celebration that looks in three directions— one, we'll see that the Lord's Supper proclaims the past, that it points us to the reality of Jesus and his death. The second thing we'll see is that the Lord's Supper proclaims something about the present, that it proclaims Jesus' victorious resurrection and his continuing life in his people by the Holy Spirit. And then we'll see that the Lord's Supper proclaims something about the future, that it points us to the hope and the reality and the glory of Jesus' return, of his second coming. So the first thing that we'll see is that the Lord's Supper proclaims the past. So, so as we've noted, in taking this meal, and taking the Lord's Supper, we proclaim, we picture the good news of Jesus' death. We proclaim what has already happened in the past because we believe that Jesus has already come to this world, that he has already accomplished all that is needed for the salvation of his people. In fact, this is what Jesus tells us. This is what Paul records for us in verse 26. That as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do what? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The point of this meal, physical, tangible reminder of what Jesus did for us when he came, when he died, and when he rose again. The, the, the first reality that this points us to is that Jesus' death was a death to free us from sin. Jesus died to free us from sin. You, you see, we can't too often be reminded of that. 
that the greatest need of every human that has ever lived is forgiveness of sin. To be made right with a just and holy and good God. The God who created them and made them, yet you and I chose to rebel against. And as rebels, we find ourselves under God's just wrath and judgment and condemnation. And so we desperately need someone to save us. Interestingly, when Jesus instituted this supper, he was celebrating another meal with his disciples. He was celebrating a former act of God's forgiveness. You may remember from the gospel accounts that Jesus and his disciples had gathered together to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was a meal that looked back to God's great salvation of his people, Israel, from the nation of Egypt, where God came and powerfully brought the ten plagues, and finally the plague that the firstborn died, and the promise was, take some blood of a lamb, dip it, and put it on the top and the sides of the doors of your house, and you will be passed over. God would spare all of those who were inside the house. Now that great salvation that God worked, the substitute death of a lamb whose blood was spread on the house was a picture of a coming greater salvation. It pointed to the hope of a greater Savior, whose blood wouldn't just be put on a house, but whose blood would take away the sin of the world. And so when Jesus shows up, we read in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus is walking, and John the Baptist, who had come as the forerunner to him, looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus came to die, and he came to die for sin. And on the cross, Jesus died for sin once for all. And so in his death, as we saw in the book of Colossians, his people are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. Jesus, through his death, frees us from sin. And in Jesus' death, all that we need for salvation was accomplished and achieved by him and him alone. And so that is applied to us by trusting in him. And so one of the things that that this supper reminds us of is that it's not our goodness, it's not our works, it's not even the relative strength or weakness of our faith that saves us, it is the strength of the object of our faith that saves us. Did you get that? What saves you is not the relative strength or weakness of your faith, because listen, some days we feel great in our faith, right? We feel like, I am spiritually high. I am doing great. I am so good. And some days we feel low, like we have almost no faith, and we're hanging on by a thread. But in all of those days, it's not our feelings that saves us. It's the object of our faith in which we have hope and salvation. I mean, I mean think about it. For those people in Israel, when the original Passover happened— whether they were in the house, scared out of their minds, or whether they were in their house sleeping like a baby, they were saved because they trusted in the promise of the Lord. It's it's, it's rather like this. Imagine that next week there's a a news flash and there's a a terrible, severe storm sweeping through Michigan and it's spawning tornadoes and it's, it's got holt in its sights, and, and it's flooding and tornadoes, and it's just, it's just devastating everywhere. 
And I get an alert on my phone, and I hop up out of my desk, and I drive home, and I go into the house, and I say, kids, kids, everybody, stop what you're doing right now. Grab what you can. You have five minutes. We need to get in the car. A storm is coming, and it is going to obliterate everything. We need to go now. And the kids grab what they can. They're like, can we bring the dogs? And I'm like, oh, I guess. And so we grab the dogs, and we, and we hop in the van, and we start to drive. And on the way, one of the kids is just just concerned out of their mind, like, where are we going? What's happening with the storm? What do you mean it's flooding? How deep is the water? Will we ever see our house again? What's going on? And, and, and one kid is like, can we play video games? Like, can we, can we, play, our, can we play our candles now? Like, what's, what's going on? And one kid's just looking out the window, seeing everything is happening, and one kid just says, okay, Dad, and is just falling right asleep. Now, of those four kids, with all of their different reactions to what I told them, which of them is saved from the storm? All four of them. Because they got in the car and they left because they trusted me. In the same way, whether your faith feels firm, whether your faith feels shaky, whether you feel like you're holding on by a thread, that is not what saves you. It is the great object of your faith, Jesus Christ, that saves you, and he will not fail. As he said, he will not lose any of his people. So as we come to this table, we're reminded that it was the death of Jesus, his broken body, his spilled blood, that that and that alone saves us. And so we have hope and we have confidence. We're also reminded that Jesus' death was in our place, that he died for us. Look at verse 24. There, Paul is quoting the Lord Jesus, and he says that the Lord gave thanks and he broke the bread and then he said this is my body which is for you it's it's given for you it's in your place you see when jesus's body was broken and his blood was spilled on the cross he died the death we should have died he was in our place and so as we come to celebrate this we are reminded that the death of jesus is for us that he did what we could never do on our own but desperately needed as we, as we come to this meal, we're also reminded that Jesus came to this earth so that he could have a body to be broken, so that he could have blood to be spilled on our behalf. It points us to the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. It points us to that truth that we have celebrated at Christmas time, that Jesus came, right? We love to say that he is the reason for the season, but he did not come to be a baby in a manger. He came to be a man who would die on a cross. God became a man in Jesus so that he could have a body to break and blood to spill for you and me, so that we could have peace with God because we needed a substitute. And so as we take the bread and take the cup, we're reminded that Jesus did that for us out of love. And then we're reminded that we have received this salvation by faith. See, all this is pointing back to what Jesus has already accomplished for us. But again, we don't receive that until we have applied it to ourselves by faith. We have to put our trust in it. And so the, the physical act of taking bread and taking the cup of receiving those things is a reminder that that is how we receive Christ. 
That, that if you sit out there and watch everyone else come, you, you, you've not taken the Lord's Supper until you come and you receive those elements. In the same way, you can hear about Jesus, you can come to worship services, you can come to church, you can read your Bible, but unless you have actually reached out and received Him by faith, you have no part in salvation in Him. Because it's not about what we do. It's about who he is and what he has done. And so this supper reminds us that we receive that salvation by receiving Jesus by faith, by putting all of our trust and all of our hope in him and who he is and what he's done for us. So as the Lord's Supper looks back on the finished work of Jesus, it also reminds us of the present, of our current standing in him. So we see that the Lord's Supper proclaimed the past, the perfect work of Jesus, his death on the cross, but the Lord's Supper also proclaims something about the present. And what that proclaims is the resurrection and the continuing life of Jesus. Now, the resurrection has been implied in this verse, but it's here. Look again at verse 26. Jesus says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he, what? Until he comes. That is a pointer to the truth and the reality that Jesus is alive. That Jesus rose again. Because think about it, dead people don't go anywhere. Right? We don't wait for the return of people who have passed on. But we wait for the return of Jesus because he is not dead. He rose again, and so we can trust that he is coming again. And it's because Jesus is alive that we can celebrate his death. Because there's not any other time we do that. I mean, death is hard. Death hurts. Death stings. We do often observe the anniversary of the death of loved ones. We remember those times and those dates. But those aren't celebrations. Those are times when grief returns, when hurt stirs up. But Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, that we are to celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. Why? Because his death accomplished salvation, and because he is not dead. He rose again. And so when we take this meal and proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim that he rose. And we have to remember that the resurrection is an essential part of our faith. Without the resurrection, in fact, we are hopeless. I, I, I've heard it argued, and I remember growing up in Sunday school, I had a well-intentioned teacher who would often say, hey, listen, guys, I mean, even if, even if all this stuff about Jesus isn't true, like, even if we're wrong about this, it's still the best way to live to be a Christian. Well, is that true? Well, because you're moral and you're nice and you're good citizens. But here's what God's word tells us. If the resurrection isn't true, Paul says later in the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verses 16 through 20, he says, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, if there's no resurrection, we can pack up and we can go home and we can kick back and we can watch football and we can party. Paul says, listen, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die if there's no resurrection. 
Well, what's the point of the sacrifice? What's the point of fighting temptation? What's the point of sacrificing and giving generously? What's the point of sacrificing our time and gathering together if Christ hasn't risen? Paul says there's not. But Paul says, praise the Lord, Christ has risen from the dead, so we have hope and we proclaim the truth and the reality of his resurrection. And so his resurrection gives us power to live Christ-like lives. Because as Paul says in Colossians 3, our lives are now hidden with Christ. So when we partake of this meal and think of the resurrection of Christ, we are reminded that we have the power that we need to live for Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul describes that power like this, that God's immeasurable power toward us who believe, according to his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That power dwells in you and me to give us strength to put sin to death and pursue Christ. We proclaim that reality when we come to this table. We also proclaim, when we proclaim the resurrection of Christ, that death is not the final answer. We proclaim that even in death, there is hope because Jesus defeated death. We proclaim that we follow the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in me, though he die, shall live. That is our great hope. When we take this meal, we proclaim Jesus is alive and he's coming again and he's given us the power to live for him. The other thing we proclaim about the the present is not only that Jesus is risen and alive and reigning, but we proclaim every time we partake of this meal that we are Jesus' people and that we are part of Jesus' people, the church. You see, when we partake of this meal, we are proclaiming our ongoing, current faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. It's like how baptism is a public proclamation of the beginning of our faith, where we say to the world, I have put my faith in Jesus, and I'm with Jesus, and I'm with his people. Every time we come to this table, we proclaim, I'm still with Jesus. I'm still with his people. And so I desire to live like him, and I recommit myself to him. I recommit myself to his people, the church. And so because of that, Because taking this meal proclaims a current act of faith in Jesus, we believe that this is only to be partaken by believers in Jesus, by those who have professed faith in him. And and so, this meal reminds us that in the present we live by faith in the indestructible life of Jesus. And that life of Jesus empowers us in the present, but it also secures our future. And so we see, thirdly, that the Lord's Supper proclaims the future. Look again in in verse 26. So we see here that Paul's given us the details and instruction on celebrating this meal together. In verse 26, he says again, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, as the Lord's Supper points us back to the Passover, as it points us back to the death of Jesus in our place, as it points us to the hope and reality of resurrection, it also points us to the future. It points us to Christ's 
glorious return and a more glorious meal, more glorious than the Passover in the past, more glorious than the Lord's Supper in the present. There is a glorious meal that God's people will enjoy with him that in Revelation we see called the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, this, this meal, this celebration, this ordinance, the Lord's Supper, this bread and this cup, this taking of it together, this is a temporary celebration. Well, why? How do we know that? Well, for one, he says that, that when you take it, you will proclaim the Lord's death when? Until he comes. You see, there is a day coming when Jesus will return and his people will be with him forever. And when we are with Jesus, we will no longer need the symbol to point to him. We won't need reminders of his death because we will be in his presence beholding him for all eternity. When the real thing is there, you don't need the symbol. Right, right? so if, if you remember back to last year about this time, uh, you all had called me to be your pastor, and we were in transition, uh, moving from North Carolina and coming here. But every couple weeks, you'd get a little video from me, right? And, and it was to continue to introduce myself to you, to continue to, to get to get used to hearing my voice. And, and you would get these. And these were sort of a placeholder saying, hey, you've called me as your pastor. I'm not there yet physically, but don't worry, I'm coming. And here's what we hope the Lord does with us together. Well, well, then in January, we moved and we got here. Now, what would you have thought if that first Sunday that I was supposed to be here preaching, instead of getting up and preaching, you got another video? You have thought, well, what is going on here? Well, we don't, why, do, why are we continuing to get these videos? We thought he was here. We thought he had come. You don't need the videos anymore because you get me live and in the flesh every week. It would have made no sense to continue to make those videos and play them for you as if I was not here. In the same way, there will be a glorious day when we don't need the symbol, when we don't need the reminder because what we delight in and what we are thinking of and what we cherish, he will be right there before us. And we'll see him with our eyes and we'll be in his presence. And we'll celebrate a new meal. See, Jesus at the, at the Last Supper, and we read this in the book of Matthew, said to his disciples, hey, hey take this cup. And then he said, but listen, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new in the kingdom of my Father. And while Jesus shows up and he eats some meals, he eats some fish, we don't ever see him drinking wine again. But we read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, that there is going to be a day where the, the bride is assembled, the, the church, God's people, the redeemed from all generations will come and be clothed in white, and the marriage of the Lamb will have come. And so John sees this picture. He sees the church, the saints of all ages, come, made pure by Christ, and Christ coming as a bridegroom. And he sees it as a great feast. And he says, The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This supper points us to a greater supper that won't be temporary, that will be an eternal feast of joy and glory in the presence of the Lamb, where we won't need symbols because He'll be with us 
we'll be with him. We'll see him face to face. When we see him, we'll be made like him. And so every time we take this supper, we proclaim the reality that just as Jesus came, he will come again, and he will come bodily, and he will come with glory, and he will come in victory to finally bring full salvation to his people and to bring judgment on those who have rejected him. So we see again that hope of the future, that point of this meal is only for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. That we must put our faith in him. That we must turn to him. You must do that. Because he will come. His people will be with him. We will see him. We will be like him. And so as we take this meal, we proclaim, Come, Lord Jesus. Because the Lord's Supper proclaims the past. It proclaims that Jesus came, that Jesus died in our place. It proclaims the present, that Jesus rose again, that he is alive, empowering us to live for him. And it proclaims the glorious future that one day Jesus will come again and his people will be with him for all eternity. And so now in just a moment we'll come and and we'll celebrate this meal together, and in doing so, we will proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes. We will celebrate our Lord. We'll proclaim our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us. We'll proclaim our love for him in the here and now. We'll proclaim our commitment to him and his people, and we'll proclaim our hope in his glorious return. So as we prepare to come, ask yourself, have you trusted? Have you put your faith in him? Have you received salvation and so are able to take of this meal? Paul also tells us in this chapter that that we are to examine our hearts when we come to this meal. So, So how's your heart? Is there sin you need to confess to the Lord? Is there a place where you need to repent? And then how are your relationships? This is a meal that we take together that pictures the unity we have in Christ. Is there one here that maybe you need to go to and apologize to? to? Wherever you are right now, as we come to celebrate this meal, turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Receive the grace of Jesus, and then let us come together and celebrate our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. And we thank you for your great love for us in Christ. Father, I thank you for the perfect love of Jesus. For the perfect work of Jesus in our place. Father, I thank you for the gift of your Son, the gift of your church and the gift of the Lord's Supper that we can be reminded of Jesus that the reason you came was to die and to be pointed to the reality and hope that you are coming again. So Father, I pray in in these moments that you'll help us to examine our hearts, that you'll help us turn to you in repentance and trust and, and salvation, and that we will joyfully celebrate this meal together. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.